You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. Was there ever a time in your life when others defined you in a certain way, but deep down you knew you were something else? Something much more? Maybe you were new, maybe you were different. They picked a lane for you, and you were passed by. This could describe the Edison Banyan tree as it began its life in Fort Myers, Florida in the 1920s. It was an unassuming sapling from India planted by Thomas Edison at his winter estate, one of thousands of plants he experimented with there. But soon after, its genetic potential busted loose and its inner fabulousness could not be contained. It is now an enormous, beloved fig tree. Yep, it's a type of fig. And this not-so-gentle giant is the main attraction at the Edison Ford Winter Estates historic site. Why did Edison plant the banyan tree? I'll be speaking to Debbie Hughes, the horticultural director, to find out. Looking back to India, What are its myths and what's its true nature? What's its place in the history of civilization? Guest Mike Shanahan will explain. He's a rainforest ecologist, blogger, and author of the wonderful 2016 book, Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, The Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. Join me as I discover the story of the Edison Banyan tree. I'm Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree When walking between the parking lot and the outbuildings at the Edison Ford Winter Estates, Visitors can't help but notice a shady stand of trees that seems inviting. But it's not a stand at all. It's a single tree, our Edison Banyan. It covers an entire acre, a series of interconnected branches supported by hundreds of aerial roots that have formed into trunks in their own right after reaching the ground long ago. There are many Banyan trees in southern Florida growing in a variety of places, but this is the biggest and one of the first. I had the pleasure of talking with Debbie Hughes, the longtime horticultural director at Edison Ford, about the history of this tree and what people love about it. Debbie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Douglas. I am so excited to talk about trees. (laughs) I was wondering if you could just describe where you work and what are the Edison Ford Winter Estates? Well, it's in a historical neighborhood, of course. Uh, Fort Myers was a small little community, about 300 people when Edison moved here for the winter. He, his doctor told him that he needed to get out of the cold in New Jersey where his lab was. So he ended up uh, coming here throughout his older years. And Mina, his wife, was 20 years younger than him. So she lived longer. She donated the property of 20 acres to the at um, the city of Fort Myers. So because of that, we have this wonderful property with his old homes and gardens that he experimented here and he had a lab and we now have a museum. It's a wonderful place to visit. 
And Henry Ford was next door. Yeah, Henry Ford came. He was his friend. Uh, basically, Henry Ford worked for Edison in one of his companies, and they met at a conference. And when Henry Ford said to Thomas uh, that he was developing this new car, his, it was called the Quadricycle. It was basically a bicycle. So Edison, as always, would say something to him like, what are you waiting for? You know, get to work, because that's the way Edison would think, too. And so uh, Ford became really good friends with him. He bought a house next door. And when he bought the house next door, they would travel together, going camping, and they loved to be together. I mean, they were basically, Edison was like a father to Henry. Well, this tree was brought to my attention by a friend who's, families from the Fort Myers area. Yeah. And he was like, wow, you've got to see this tree. I, I haven't been there, but I saw pictures and it's spectacular. I was wondering if you could create a picture for our listeners, um, sort of in our mind's eye, what the tree looks like and how it fits into the surroundings and what it feels like to stand next to it or better yet underneath it. Yeah. It's why people come to visit, honestly. People will just drive up. You don't even have to pay to see it. You drive up. It's off this historical neighborhood, a very amazing street called McGregor Boulevard. And it is, the boulevard is amazing to begin with. It's all palms lining this uh, street. And when they turn into the parking lot, they literally, their jaw drops because tree is, it's, it's more than a tree. It's, it's an event. I, I have seen a lot of trees in my life. I just came back from Portland and Seattle area, and you know how their trees are amazing, too. They have redwoods and cedars and pines that are large. I mean, we're talking really large to the point where you can really see how far up they go. Looks like into the sky completely. This tree is totally different. This tree, imagine one central trunk, and you couldn't even wrap your arms around the central trunk. You'd have to have three or four people wrap your arms around the central trunk. But that's not all of it. Once you get past that, you have the tree just keeps walking. So imagine you have a central trunk and then you, you got arms. And the arms are so long that they drop down aerial roots. And after they drop down the aerial roots, it takes, I don't know, five years for those aerial. They're like strings. They become a trunk themselves where you can barely wrap your arms around. And it just keeps doing this all around one acre. So it's a big circular tree. I love that term that or that phrase that the, the tree is walking. It's 393 inches in circumference. So if you took a, a measuring tape and surrounded the whole, I guess you would say all the trunks because there's there's quite a few. I would say there's about 50 trunks. Amazing. That's 393 feet. And then the tree is 74 feet tall, which is not extreme, right? But it's a lot wider. It's a lot wider than it is tall. So when you think about it, it's not immense because it's tall, like a sequoia or redwood would be. It is immense because it just keeps going and it just keeps walking. And to me, that's what makes it so much fun. What's it like to walk underneath it or, or through it? Well, it's, it's difficult because the trunks are like elephant feet. 
So each each trunk that attaches to these branches, you kind of get wrapped up in them. You, you you could trip real easily. So you have to be careful where you're walking. Um, of course, it's 10 degrees cooler. Say, for instance, it's 95 here today. If you're underneath that banyan tree, it's 80s. And you feel like you're cool compared to the rest if you're in the sun. And it's so shaded. It's like a home. You could literally live under there. The only the only thing that's really hard, Doug, is the fruit. It's nasty. It's not edible to humans. Uh, I'm sure there's some animals that do eat it. It's Ficus bengalensis. It's from India. We don't have probably the uh, animals that would eat it. Not even I don't even notice the birds eating it. But I do notice that it stinks and it makes a mess. But that if that's all we have to put up with, it's not too bad. If you stood still long enough, it could grow around you and it would pick you up. Uh, I do notice uh, people have done tricks like that in other places and they the arrow roots will attach to bicycles it will attach to furniture whatever so let's get to that origin story yeah why was the tree planted and what was going on the tree was planted simply because he was doing rubber research so he thought we need to have a rubber source during the world war one they had a shortage so he figured, let's come up with a source that we can grow any, in all over the United States and we could um, make sure we don't have that shortage. And that might have also been from the um, influence of Henry Ford. Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone with the tires. They had an uh, arrangement. It was called the Edison Botanic Research Laboratory. And they tested 17,000 plants. Plants were sent from all over the world. and. There was there's like a, an urban legend that Harvey Firestone brought a little tree, a banyan tree from India. It's since been proven wrong. So he thought this tree has that white latex in it. So you could slash the tree trunk and you'd get this white latex substance out, which you could it's actually a rubber. But Edison, you know, the way he was, he was an inventor. Not just in mechanical things. He, he believed in doing inventions with practical plant material, too. So he tested all these plants. He came up with goldenrod. And you know why he came up with goldenrod? When he ground the goldenrod plants, 12% of it was rubber latex. So any part of the world here in the United States could grow goldenrod, right? I mean, it's, it's a native wildflower or weed, some people say every part of the country. And he was basically thinking you could grow it just like you grow cotton or corn or anything else. But the banyan tree was his first, second, third choice maybe. Um, but then again, he realized it couldn't grow in any other part except for South Florida. So this was one plant among 17,000, did you say? Yeah, they sent it from everywhere. And they had a research garden here in South Florida and a research garden up in New York and then New Jersey both. Yeah. So they were hoping that this tree would have a utilitarian purpose and become a, a workhorse. Right. And they continue to do this research even after he passed away in 1931. And they closed it down, I think, around 1938 because they came up with the, the synthetic rubber. So what was planted around it? Was it in a row of other types of trees? It was in a row, like 
like you had a um, an orchard. But the banyan was unique. I don't know why he put the banyan where he put it. He must have known. It's almost like he, he went in the future and came back in the past. <laughs> it's got to go here because you know, where he put it is is the place where everything happens. Right. It was in the center of it all. The center of it all. And it took over. And it, yes, we have pictures of it. Just this little teeny seedling, about four feet tall. And now when you see it, you cannot believe it's the same tree. We're going to come back to Debbie, but all of this had me thinking that I need to learn more about banyan trees and their remarkable qualities. As I mentioned before, the banyan is a type of fig tree, which led me to expert Mike Shanahan and his wonderful book about the critical role of fig species in tropical climates worldwide, as well as the fig's pervasive place within culture and mythology. We're very lucky that he agreed to come on the show. Coming up after the break, you're listening to This Old Tree. Mike Shanahan is a freelance writer and editor with a doctorate in rainforest ecology from the University of Leeds. He writes a blog called Under the Banyan, Stories About Us and Nature, which focuses on climate change and biodiversity loss. But he's most well known for his research and writing about fig tree species worldwide. And in 2016, he wrote a book called Gods, Wasps, and Stranglers, the Secret History and Redemptive Future of Fig Trees. This um, focused on the many ways that fig trees have shaped human evolution and civilization, both physically and through the imagination and through myth. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'm looking forward to talking to you. So, how did you come to study fig trees and how did they capture your imagination? I started on this journey in uh, 1996 when I was doing a master's project at the University of Leeds. And I went to Borneo for about a month where I was working in a national park there. And uh, the national park I was in had about 80 different species of fig trees and a huge variety within those 80 species. And my project was looking at how uh, different fig trees use different uh, tactics to attract their seed dispersing animals. So uh, in terms of how they produce their figs, where they produce them, what color they are, whether they smell or they don't smell. And I was looking at how uh, different types of animals eat different types of figs. So I was impressed by how many different fig species there are. Um, Ficus is the genus. What are the types of fig trees that everyone knows? So everyone's probably familiar with Ficus carica, which is the so-called edible fig. And this is the one that originated in the sort of Mediterranean area and has now been planted as a domestic crop in about 70 countries. And within that species alone, you have, you know, many, many hundreds of varieties that farmers have developed over thousands of years. So that's the, the common one that everyone is familiar with. Some of the fig trees are, are like that. They're, they're a typical tree, you know, a straight trunk and some branches and some leaves. Many others do different things. So you have some that are just shrubs that are very low lying. You have some that are creepers that climb up onto other trees to grow. 
And then you have the strangler figs, which are some of the most famous ones, which often start out in life high up on another tree where their seed is deposited, and then they send their roots downwards to reach the earth and create a stable scaffold. What's the um, what's the species that's the common houseplant? Uh, so that's probably Ficus benjamina. That's the the so-called weeping fig, uh, which in your house maybe a you know a couple of feet tall, but in the rainforest it can be thirty meters. Uh, with a million figs on it and feeding uh, 30 or more species of birds and mammals. Um, that is a kind of strangler fig in the wild, but it can also grow up from the ground. And then I think a few more uh, species that you find in, in households these days include Ficus elastica, which is the uh, the Indian rubber tree, and Ficus lyrata, the fiddle-leafed fig, which is an increasingly popular houseplant. When you were in Borneo, you studied Ficus arantiaca. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> Could you describe it and um, maybe your first experience when you saw it? So this is a species that is of a type called root climbers, and they, they start out in life on the forest floor where a seed germinates, and then they grow up a big tree. They They develop a very stout um stem that grows upwards and from that grow from some very small leaves about the size of a thumbnail and as the fig grows upwards it produces its its figs which can be about the size of a tennis ball big red orange figs and um when you have figs that big you you need a a big animal to to eat them and they're particularly favored by monkeys this is a species i i was uh I encountered a few times in the rainforest, but one time I was up a tree. I'd gone looking for these figs and uh, I saw some from a distance. And luckily there was a tree nearby that had a ladder uh, attached all the way up to it, up the top, because some other researchers had been studying that tree for other reasons. And so I I climbed this ladder. Um, When I say a ladder, it was actually a series of ladders, one on top of the other, going up very high. And uh, foolishly, I hadn't taken my safety harness and I wasn't clipped in. I didn't follow the protocol and I just was desperate to get hold of these figs. So I climbed and climbed and climbed. And as I went up, I encountered a snake up the tree as well. So uh, I had to reach past a a venomous snake to get the figs I wanted. Um, This is very Garden of Eden, it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of temptation going on. (laughs) But the the figs themselves, they're they're quite large, and I had to sort of stuff them inside the the clothes I was wearing so I could get them back down to safety. Well, in your book, you write so beautifully and bring us there, um, you know, in the reader's mind. And I just want to read a passage from when you're in the forest because it's so good. Each time I stepped into that forest, I encountered another world. It was hot and humid and full of mosquitoes. The forest's palette of greens and browns flooded my vision. Countless trees crowded in on me. Vines crept and corkscrewed their way skywards at every possible angle. Some were as thick as a thigh. Strange sounds tricked my ears. Strange shapes moved, then vanished. There were musty scents whose sources I never found. Most of the trees were just a few centimeters thick, but were so numerous, I could only take a couple of steps off a trail before hitting one. Others were giants, as broad as a small car, and none was as spookily beautiful as the first freestanding strangler fig I saw there. 
Its host tree had long since died and rotted away, and the strangler's roots now formed a scaffold with a hollow core. I stepped inside and looked up. Shafts of light shone down at me from far above. This ficus carcovenii became my favorite landmark in the forest. Yeah, because it's just such an amazing thing to come across in the forest when you, you, you're wandering around this landscape of trees, 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 and trees, and, and then suddenly you come across this thing that looks like molten wax that is frozen in shape and is unlike anything else. It, be, it being one of the strangler figs, it was one that was particularly attractive to lots of different types of wildlife. So it was a great one to go and uh, watch at dawn uh, when the animals come to feed. Um, but more, as I mentioned in that extract that you read, it, it was also a landmark and in the forest. It's, it's great when you're wandering around a forest to, to have these things that you spot every now and again that remind you of where you are and uh, and how to get home again. <laughs> Could you describe the strangler fig in more detail? Just could you describe the processes that are happening when it from germination to it becoming a, a, a full-grown tree? Okay, so most of these strangler figs are dispersed either by fruit bats or by birds or uh, monkeys or various other animals uh, that are in the forest, and they live in the canopy. So when they poop, they poop out their seeds quite high up. And if one of these seeds happens to fall in the right place, which is the, the crotch of a, of a tree where the branch joins the trunk, it will germinate there and start to send down some, some roots. These are called aerial, aerial roots. So the, the, the tiny fig seedling is way up in the canopy. It's got a couple of leaves to start with. And these roots start descending downwards and they hug the, the host tree and head on downwards towards the ground. Once they, once they tap into the soil down below, then the, the tree can start to do two things. It starts to expand above where it can produce many more leaves to capture the sunlight, but it also starts to produce many more of these aerial roots which can fuse with each other, they can split, they can form a basket work. So they, they form a structure that's very stable so that even if the host tree does die, the strangler fig can then become freestanding in many cases. So it doesn't necessarily, in a tropical forest situation, um, it, it can't really survive by germinate, or most can't survive by germinating in the soil because there's a, a closed canopy. So it has evolved to, to germinate up in the canopy. Yeah, it's beating the system, really. M many of the strangler figs can, in fact, germinate on, on the ground. They don't have to be on a, on a host tree. But in a rainforest, on the ground is not a great place to be because there is so much competition and there's so little light. So the strangler figs really uh, have, have reached this, this deal with the seed-dispersing animals and uh, they pay them with fig flesh and in return they get the seed dispersal service. So they can very quickly get the benefits of the light from the canopy and because of their rapid growing roots... They, uh, they then get the benefits of the soil as well. So they, they get the best of both worlds. We're going to come back to the banyan, but is the banyan a, a strangler fig? Yes, it is. It's, a, it's one of the strangler figs and perhaps the most impressive. I was fascinated by the relationship between a fig wasp and fig trees in general, and that there's one, there are many different types of fig wasps, maybe as many as there are fig tree species. Could you describe the relationship? 
Yeah, so the, it, it all hinges on the fig, really. People think a fig is a fruit, but it's not really. It's a it's like a hollow ball lined with flowers. And those flowers don't really see the light of day. They're pollinated only by fig wasps, which are tiny little insects, a couple of millimeters long. Um, the figs can only breed inside those. Uh, so the fig wasps can only breed inside the, the figs of their partner species. And in most cases, each fig species has one or maybe two fig wasp species that do this uh, service of pollination for it. The, uh, a female fig wasp will be flying around and she's carrying eggs inside her and she's got pollen on her from the fig in which she was born. She has to find the right kind of fig of the right species at the right stage of development. And when she does so, she forces her way into that fig through a tiny little hole at the end of the fig. As she does, her wings will be torn from her body, her antennae will be ripped off, and then she'll make her way into the hollow heart of the fig, which will be completely in darkness. And in there, she will wander around on top of the, on the surface of the flowers that are in there. She'll be pollinating those flowers and laying her eggs in some of them. I'd like to switch to India now because our, our banyan is from India. And first, I'd like to talk about Ficus religiosa. And the mythology behind that tree, the origins of Indian culture and early Indian people in India, specifically, I guess, in the Indus Valley. Why was the tree important and why did it become such an important part of the culture? Well, Ficus religiosa is another one of these strangler figs. Um, and generally, these stranglers tend to be very large trees. They tend to be very impressive to look at because of their, uh, the, the way they form and their aerial roots that just look so eerie and strange. Uh, but also they're very important for the, the ecosystems in which you find them because they feed so many animals and those animals disperse the seeds of many other plant species. So they're, they're ecologically important and early humans, wherever they've encountered strangler figs, have put them into their mythologies and stories and have created um, taboos against cutting down fig trees, which you find in in Africa, in Asia, in the Pacific, and many other places. So Ficus religiosa in particular has a bit of this documented in the way that others others don't. So the, the tree appears in ceramic seals that were made by the people in the Indus Valley about three and a half thousand years ago. Uh, they, they depict what looks like a, a god or goddess figure within a tree and somebody appearing to make some sort of offerings for it, suggesting that this tree had religious value all the way back then. Um, and since then, Ficus religiosa you know, has had many important roles in other cultures that have come after the Indus Valley uh, people lived, including in Hinduism, in Buddhism, the tree that the Buddha sat beneath as he attained enlightenment was a strangler fig of the species Ficus religiosa. It is um, important for many, many less well-known uh, religions and uh, local ethnic groups across India. And in many cases, people will use this tree as a, as a place of prayer, a place to um, particularly pray for things related to fertility and longevity and, uh, you know, a peaceful long life. 
and even just a, a meeting place. I mean, under the shade of these, this enormous tree, it's, you know, a value. Exactly. Uh, these trees, the banyan in particular, has been used as a, as a shade tree for thousands of years. Uh, it was planted along roads to give shelter to people traveling between towns thousands of years ago. It is um, a tree around which settlements have sprung up. Many villages have got a banyan at their center where the, the local governance takes place. Local village council takes place under the banyan tree. And the Bombay Stock Exchange was founded underneath a banyan tree in, in the city now, now called Mumbai. So across India and other parts of South Asia, banyan trees and other kinds of strangler figs have often been center points of, of, of culture, of commerce, of conversation. You know, these things are the part of the structure of life. And as you state, the fig tree around the world is part of the creation myth of almost every major religion and, uh, and other religions. I'd like to read this one passage that you wrote about having to do with Buddha and setting the scene. The young prince Siddhartha Gautama was on a six-year journey to find enlightenment, and he ended up under a ficus religiosa. And you write, the tree belonged to a species scientist today called ficus religiosa, the sacred fig. This species grows up to 30 meters tall and has smooth gray bark and small red figs. Its hand-sized, heart-shaped leaves are shiny and stiff, with long pointed tips and long slender stalks. When the wind blows, the leaves tap against each other and create a sound like the wing beats of thousands of tiny birds. This fluttering filled Gautama's ears as he tried to fathom the meaning of the universe. I just thought that was so descriptive. And I love how you brought that sound in of, of that scene and that, that myth. Thanks. I'm glad you like that. I, I find it fascinating, the idea of someone sitting for a long time under a tree to meditate, but closing your eyes and sitting under a tree and uh, just absorbing the soundscape is, is, a, is a fun thing to do. Yeah, and I love the thought of those heavy sort of waxy leaves. I could, I could uh, hear that and picture that. Um, what are the Hindu myths surrounding the banyan tree? The banyan features in, in a great many myths. And uh, so there are so many, in fact. But uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of the famous ones is that the, there's uh, the idea of a cosmic world tree, which is a banyan that is sort of upside down with its roots in the heavens and the, the branches descending down to earth and, and bringing gifts to, to humanity from, uh, from the celestial realm. And that's a story that's been around for about two and a half thousand years. Uh, it's, it's, it puts the Banyan right into the center of, uh, of Hinduism alongside other fig trees. Uh, another one is about the, the idea that the, the universe totally dissolves itself every, uh, you know, periodically and then is reborn. So just in the idea that you have reincarnation uh, in Hinduism, the idea also applies to the universe as a whole, that it's it's periodically a dissolution happens and then it's, it's reborn. And one of the stories says that uh, the god Vishnu is... So, is is a, is is there in this time floating through the cosmos on as a, in the form of a baby resting on a banyan leaf 
And it's Vishnu who sort of inhales the whole of the universe and then breathes it out again to, to, for its rebirth. There are many stories about other banyan trees. There are some that have grown up um, to be very, very large. These things are, are, are truly huge. So this is the largest of them all, right? Yeah. So, so one of them, there's a story about a, um, a saint called Kabir who was apparently brushing his teeth with a, a bit of twig 550 years ago or so and he threw the twig away after he'd finished and immediately up sprang a, a huge banyan tree as big as a forest covering about a hectare of land and this tree you can go to it now you can go to it today it's in Gujarat it's called Kabirvad and um, it's it was on a, a silty island in the Namada river now when a British writer was there in the year 1794, he described this thing as having about 350 trunks the size of an English oak tree and another 3,000 smaller trunks. And the idea that a tree can have more than one trunk is alien, of course, to many people. But what the banyan does as it grows, its branches grow out from the main trunk of the tree. And as they grow, they send down more of these aerial roots that are the Stranglerthig specialities. And as these roots, which are like hair, they're, they're kind of like brown matted hair, as they reach down to the ground, they thicken and they become pillars that hold up those big branches, allowing them to grow even further out and send yet more of these um, pillar roots down. So from a distance, you could see what looks like a small forest, but it's actually just a single tree. One tree. And, and yeah. entire towns or villages sort of sprung up beneath a, a banyan tree. Exactly, yes. There's a there's a, a city in India called Varadar, which means in the heart of the banyan tree. And uh, that's how it grew up around one of these huge trees or several of them. And if you go there today, you'll find there are many banyan trees there. But um, this this Kabirvad, which is uh, in Gujarat, there some people think it may be the same tree that was described by some of Alexander the Great's uh, companions when he reached India in the year 326 BCE. So, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, they knew the fig um, that they had been eating um, back in Greece, Macedonia, and but then they discovered this banyan tree. Yes, and they even described it as being like a fig, even though the tree itself looks completely different. They had looked inside the figs and they had made that connection thousands of years ago. They they just they sent these descriptions back to uh, you know back to Europe, and the the Greek philosopher Theophrastus, who's considered to be the sort of father of botany, he he wrote up his descriptions of the you know the very first descriptions of ficus in a scientific sense. And he named three species. It was the, the ficus carica, the edible one, this banyan from India, which looks totally different, uh, and a third species, ficus uh, psychomorus, which you find in, in Egypt and parts of other parts of Africa as well. Um, so he joined the dots and named three species, but there are, today we know there are, there are more than 800 of the ficus species. They were just stunned when they saw this tree for the first time. They must have been. One of one of the people in Alexander's party said that 7,000 men could stand beneath this one tree. And Incredible. For, for, a, for a long time, this was treated as, uh, you know, hyperbole and 
you know, travelers' tales from an exotic land. Clearly, they've been exaggerated, but it's it's true. You can you can get many more than that. Actually, there's a there's another tree, another banyan in southern India that uh, twenty thousand people can stand beneath. So, that, you know, that was maybe a small one. That's that's incredible. You've suggested that awe is something that humans have evolved to feel, and that it's an evolutionary advantage. And, that, and fig trees are intricately tied to the development of culture worldwide. And then you sort of tie these together. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yes. I mean, awe is something that I've experienced in rainforests a couple of times. And uh, when you experience something like that, it, it, it really does take your breath away. And, um, you know, it, it changes it changes you in many ways. And of course, the strangler figs for me are the, the, the quintessential aspect of the rainforest that, that transmits that feeling. Because when you walk through a forest and you come across these things, they um, they do blow your mind. They're they're so big. They're so dominant. They're um, and you know if you if you spend any time trying to understand them as well, then you understand how important they are. Yeah, you're right. That um, speaking of figs, their power and fertility demand the attention and respect of every human eye that sees them. So, what would you say? I mean, you obviously have a um, a great love for fig trees, including the banyan. What meaning do you derive from it? What what meaning does it have for you? Well, studying ecology and fig trees in particular is a constant reminder that everything is connected. And understanding that and appreciating that, I think, is what studying figs has really given to me. Whoa, we've come a long way in understanding the special lineage of the little tree planted by Edison for latex in 1926 in Fort Myers. But like the tree grown from the toothpick of the poet Kabir on an island in the Narmada River back in the 15th century, and many other banyans through time, the Edison banyan has grown to be awe-inspiring. That seems to be its true purpose. It's an inspiring immigrant story, if you will, but one that adds to thousands of years of stories about fig trees, this time with an American twist. And as our friend Debbie explains, the tree is quite a handful as it continues to expand. Uh, If we could get rid of the parking lot and we could let it walk some more, and that's what we're going to do. It's just the kind of thing where we allow the tree to be the boss. And that's one of the things we have to allow. As far as the buildings go, we do protect it that direction so it doesn't destroy any buildings from any kind of damage from limbs falling I have the arborist look at it, go up in a in a lift, and we check out and make sure everything is, is good. And Debbie had one more surprising tale about how the tree had been, quote-unquote, cared for in the past. At some point, that tree started to grow like mad and start to spread. Let me tell you about that. In order for them to get it to spread more, it is a champion anyway. It is a champion tree. It's the largest continental banyan tree in the whole United States. The definite improvement in making it walk was done by a curator, Mr. Hallgram. Now, this is just an urban legend also, but I kind of believe this this happened. Wherever they wanted a new aerial roots to fall down and, and start into the ground again. So they took a shotgun and they would shoot holes exactly where they wanted those aerial roots to start. Oh, boy. 
And that put a little stress on that getting shot, I'm sure. So it kind of maybe made the chemicals come out and say, okay, I need to put some roots here. And, you know, in an honesty, that's one of the reasons why we need to get rid of the parking lot, too, because we need to do some more of those shotgun uh, shootings. Oh, do you have a shotgun? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say we're going to do that. We're going to see how it works. That is an urban legend for sure. How does it inspire people, do you think? What do they say after they see it? They say that they have gone to tree heaven. You know, some people actually have a bucket list of trees they want to see. And that's one of them. How many years have you worked there? 16. After 16 years of working there, what meaning does the tree have for you? Uh, Job security, for one. (laughs) But it is, to me, that tree is going to go on forever. And I know that the next person who takes over... They're going to love it just as much as me. Oh, Debbie, you've been a, a charming guest on this old tree. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the Edison Banyan. And I I wish you well in in caring for the tree. and Keeping it, keeping it healthy. It, <laughs> keeping it healthy and expanding. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Doug. You're the best. Once again, I'd like to thank Debbie Hughes for coming on the show and thank the Edison Ford Winter Estates and the City of Fort Myers for allowing us to feature the Edison Banyan Tree. I'd also like to thank Mike Shanahan for an incredibly engaging discussion about fig trees. His book, Gods, Wasps, and Figs, is a fantastic read and I can't recommend it enough. But stick around. We have several listener-submitted tree story shorts for you after the break. This is This Old Tree. First up with the tree story short is Sushil Sachdeva from Vadodara, India. Considering that our main story was about a tree species from India, a banyan tree, having Sushil on the show today is very special. His story is about a very productive family mango tree. Hi, I am Sushil Sachdeva, a 61-year-old agriculturist from India. I am delighted to share with this August audience the story of a giant-sized mango tree which my family is so passionate and possessive about. It is located in the backyard of our family farmhouse adjoining a lemon orchard and a poultry farm in a village at Vadodara, a city in the western part of India. Not by design, it actually fell into our lap as a most nondescript object standing amidst the woods on the periphery of a parcel of agricultural land that I purchased about 15 years ago. Somehow, I happened to spot that here I was, blessed with a natural gem in its most rustic form, which my predecessors on this land, being people of limited resources and meager means, had no eye for. In the following couple of years, I went about redesigning the landscape of the two-acre area around this tree 
and now there it stands as a royalty estimated to be 60 to 70 years of age 70 feet tall with a crown diameter of 50 feet so majestically overlooking the entire 10 acre plot with beautifully manicured lawns and the family farmhouse tucked almost underneath on one side and a seasonal rivulet flowing on the other every year in february march with abated breath we wait for the appearance of flowers which then convert to pea sized fruits in a month's time usually around the first week of june the fruits are harvested being a native cultivar and managed fully with organic manures the produce varies between 800 to 1500 number of fruits per year these are 6 to 7 inches long kidney shaped green mangoes each weighing over a pound these precious little bounties are not for sale they are meant to be devoured by family and friends located even as far as a thousand miles away neatly packed into 20 pound parcels they are shipped away to reach respective destinations within 5 to 7 days by when they have ripened into golden yellow sweet smelling mangoes with a distinctive aroma we are still searching for a name for this rarest of rare cultivar but assure you that all those who have been fortunate to taste even a single bite vouch that they haven't ever come across anything similar no wonder my 80 year old aunt from delhi over a phone call the other day almost admonishingly demanded that i send her a larger consignment the next year yeah i realized that she with a family of four had just consumed only 60 of them this year thanks for your time bye then thank you for submitting that sushil you know it's funny i've recently been on a mango eating kick i honestly can't get enough of them as a midday snack it's been going a lot better since i figured out how to slice them just right around that big flattened seed so here's another short this time from a professional arborist up in Fredericton, Canada, by the name of Katie Brookers. Katie is continuing her education at the University of New Brunswick in urban forest ecology, and she also hosts a podcast called Tangled Trees. Check it out. She tells us about a charming old horse chestnut that has persevered because of and somewhat in spite of past efforts to care for it. I would like to share my favorite tree experience as an arborist. In Stratford, Ontario, on a corner just off of the main street, there is a beautiful mature specimen with quite a story. This horse chestnut has been there for I don't even know how many years. It is a staple within that community. While I was working on this tree, I had multiple neighbors come out to ensure that I wasn't actually removing it. and they continued to share stories with me about how they grew up with that tree and how they had seen it change over the years and how there wasn't really many like it in the area the coolest part about this tree from when i first walked up to it is there's a girdled metal bench that was cut away a few years back this tree was originally planted in the middle of a round metal bench 
So I often find myself wondering what type of stories were shared or what type of moments were shared on that bench before it was cut away. A little further up in the trunk, there's lots of concrete. So this is a traditional method in arboriculture to support a tree, one that is now (laughs) clearly wrong. Beyond this, there's cavities upon cavities in this trunk. It creates this gnarly, beautiful, abstract-looking formation. Within these cavities is a ecosystem in itself, from fungi to bacteria to insects, and the most adorable of all is a family of raccoons. So while I was kind of climbing and preserving this tree and doing full assessments, I had this fluffy face pop out of a cavity and greet me. I committed in that moment that I was going to do everything I could to preserve this tree and keep it there for years to come. Unfortunately, even though it was previously cabled and braced, a section of the main trunk had failed. It was up to me to kind of take this out safely, remove any hazard to the client, and then also reduce the overall canopy to kind of prevent that from happening. I installed a dynamic cable system to a lead that was remaining just because I knew that wind forces and wind loading would now be thrown off because this lead that had failed would create a new exposure. Overall, this tree is magnificent. It's one of the most twisted and stunning examples of what a mature specimen can be in an urban environment. And it really shows how much ecosystem benefit an old tree being retained in the landscape can have. I really hope it stands for future generations because I know for the previous generations before me, it was already a centerpiece. And I think we need more of that in this world. Katie, I hear you. When I was city forester of Providence, we would encounter old trees here and there stuffed with concrete. That is now an industry no-no, and yet the tree is still standing, isn't it? Arborists used to be called tree surgeons, but maybe tree dentists would have been more accurate. Literally, a filling in a cavity. Lastly, we hear from Jean Zimmerman, an arborist and author of seven books who has made the history of Manhattan a central focus in both her fiction and nonfiction. She's working on a new book entitled Heartwood, the epic tale of America's forests and the battle over their fate. But right now, it's a copper beach that most captures her imagination. My name is Jean Zimmerman. My favorite tree would have to be the copper beech, Fagus sylvatica atropurpurea. When I was growing up in a little town in New York's Hudson Valley, we would gather beneath what we called the elephant tree. The landmark stood on the overgrown lawn of the long-abandoned mansion of Billy Burke, famed as Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. The tree drew kids of all ages to congregate beneath its distinctive umbrella-like branches. Tree guru Michael Durr chose the copper beech as, quote, one of my great plant loves, and from childhood it has been one of mine too. A local attraction in my hometown, the elephant tree's knob-kneed trunk resembled nothing so much as the thick legs of its namesake animal. Here was every kid's dream, a private, self-contained refuge from the wider world. From the outside, long branches twisted sinuously from the crown to the ground, spreading outward like a hoop skirt. Inside this protected space, we found cathedral light and branches that were perfect for climbing. Kids hid there, gossiped there, made out there. The trunk was hashed with initials and hearts.
Brought to America in the 1660s, the towering European beech tops out at a full 70 feet. The cultivar, Copper Beach, takes its place among many landmarked gardens and properties. The grand homes of Newport are known for their beaches. Lindhurst in Tarrytown, New York, the former estate of Robert Baron Jay Gould, boasts an imposing collection. Wave Hill, the public garden in New York City's Riverdale section of the Bronx, features two copper beaches that sit across a park lane from each other, like kissing cousins. Wave Hill has a storied past, including notable occupants such as Theodore Roosevelt and Mark Twain. The latter said of the estate, I believe we have the noblest roaring blasts here I have ever known on land. They sing their hoarse song through the big treetops with a splendid energy that thrills me and stirs me and uplifts me and makes me want to live always. Copper might be a slight mischaracterization of the hue of the tree's leaves, which can change over the course of a season from a reddish purple in spring to blackish purple by summer. As for those knees, the older trunks have bulges and burls that are quite unlike any other tree, and something about its bark begs for the jackknives of starry-eyed young romantics. At Wave Hill, the trunk of one tree has been pretty well graffiti gouged, while the other cousin is pristine. Many people over time have found beech bark useful for leaving your mark. On a stage road in Tennessee, Daniel Boone once killed a bear. Nearby stood a huge beech tree, and Boone carved into its trunk. D. Boone killed a bar in 1760. Virginia Woolf name-checked the beach in Night and Day. Quote, it seemed a mere toss-up whether she said, I love you, or whether she said, I love the beech trees, or only, I love, I love. Some people find autobiographical messages on beach bark annoying. I don't. Thoreau said, I frequently tramped eight or ten miles through the deepest snow to keep an appointment with a beech tree. I like to think of some lost soul slogging miles through a mysterious, tangled forest, too shy to unburden himself to the person he cares for, and surreptitiously taking switchblade out of pocket to pronounce on bark indelibly the sentiment, I love, I love. Beech nuts can be consumed by deer and bear, as well as by birds and rodents, and by humans who have been known to roast and brew them in place of coffee. A nice place to drink a cup would be under the sweeping, twisted, copper-colored branches of an elephant tree. Ghosts of Mark Twain, Daniel Boone, and Virginia Woolf, you are cordially invited. Thank you, Jean. I loved your story. And thanks again to Deb Hughes and Mike Shanahan for being such wonderful guests on this episode all about the Edison Banyan tree. Martha Douglas Osmondson was a consulting editor, Dee Lee wrote the theme music, and Dun Huney created the artwork. Catch us on Facebook or Instagram to see photos and learn about other stuff, and visit the website at thisoldtree.show. Apropos of Sushil Sachdeva's Tree Story Short, here's a song by the Zach Brown Band featuring Sarah Bareilles, The Mango Tree. See you next time. Waiting for the 
sunlight to come rising from the sea. We lay under cover, shaded by the mango tree. We could stay forever, never leave this paradise. Swaying in the ocean breeze to the rhythm of the tide. Tomorrow, oh tomorrow. Take your time, 'cause we got time to borrow. I love you. Say that you love me too. We can turn the whole world upside down. Just us two. Nobody else will do. 'Cause baby, you're the only one for me. Underneath the mango tree. Just like sugar on our skin, the day is getting older. Oh, but we are still so young. Higher than the stars above, and faded like the sun. Tomorrow, oh tomorrow. Take your time. Just us two. Nobody else will do. 'Cause baby, you're the only one for me. Oh, you're so sweet. Underneath the mango tree. Us too. It's me and you. Nobody else will do, baby. You're you're the only one baby, for me. Baby, you're the only one for me. Underneath the mango tree. 